Women have been playing football for more than 150 years, and it's always been political. Some have been celebrated, but others have been ridiculed, criticized, and forgotten. This is the Forgotten 11, the hidden history of women's football. I'm not going to the White House. No. You know, there was a lot of critics talking about us, but we're back, so I suck in that one. <laughs> Give me the effing ball. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Welcome to the Forgotten 11. I'm Chris McGlynn. Before we get to the show, I have a small request. If you like the show, if you're learning a bit of this history, uh, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Those reviews really do help new listeners find the show, and you can share the show on social media. These players have been forgotten for too long. By spreading the word, we can bring them back. Today, we're going to talk about FIFA, the English FA, and the beginning of the rebellion against them. I'd like you to imagine something. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. It's a warm day. You're dressed for a football match. As you come out of the dressing room, there's the sound of a crowd building. Walk out onto the pitch. The sky is clear. The sun is warm on your face. There's a slight breeze. When you look at the grass, it moves just a little bit in the wind. Now listen. You're standing on a soccer pitch waiting for the starting whistle of the biggest match of your life. And not just your life. The biggest women's match in history. You're 15 years old. Your name is Suzanne Augustuson. There are more than 110,000 people in the stands. It's 1971, and this is the final match of the Women's World Cup. <laughs> okay, open your eyes. All that really happened, but before we get to that match, we'll have to find out how we got there. And for that, we have to go to Italy in 1969. The English Football Association was founded in 1863. It was founded primarily by gentlemanly amateur players to govern English football and to codify the first official rules of the game. In the closing decades of the 1800s, they were the law. Even outside England, others playing football would often seek guidance from the English FA. By the beginning of the 20th century, with all these other countries now playing the game, both domestically and internationally, there was a need for an international authority. On May 21st, 1904, on Rue Saint-Honoré in Paris, football representatives of France, Belgium, Denmark, the Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland founded the Fédération Internationale de Football Association, or FIFA. To give you an idea of how powerful the English FA was, along with its little brothers, the FAs of Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, one of the first things that FIFA did was to ask permission from the English FA to even exist. The English FA accepted the idea in theory, but then declined to join FIFA. 
the first president of FIFA, Robert Gorin, was a bit worried about this and so contacted all the other football associations in Europe to help create this new governing body of football. One of the stated goals of FIFA would be the creation of a new international competition. Many European associations became members of FIFA in 1904. It would take the English FA another year to join, with the promise that FIFA would enforce the strict English rules of football. This included not just rules of the game, but administration of clubs and limits on how the clubs made money. The English FA would effectively still be in charge of world football. FIFA at the time considered the Olympics to be the best format for international competition, and from 1908 the Olympics served as the World Football Championship. During World War I, women in England and France began playing the game, and the men went to go fight in the war. World War I saw the first serious use of machine guns and chemical weapons like mustard gas. Men died terrible deaths by the thousands, and the battle lines didn't move. By the end of the war, nothing much was gained. This left some hard feelings throughout Europe. All the British associations withdrew from FIFA, not wanting to play for sport against their former en enemies. In 1920, FIFA had just 20 members. And then, at the 1924 Olympics, something shocking happened. FIFA had slowly expanded after the war, and in 1924 the Paris Olympics saw 24 teams compete, including teams from North and South America, Europe, and Africa. At the 24 Olympics, tiny Uruguay first beat Yugoslavia 7-0, then the United States 3-0, 5-1 against France, 2-1 against the Netherlands, and in the final match for gold, they beat Switzerland 3-0. While the British teams did not participate in 24, this was still shocking. The very English sport of association football had been mastered by a former colony. And that colony had utterly destroyed the best teams in Europe. In 1928, things got worse. Argentina beat the U.S. 11-2. Then they beat Belgium 6-3. Egypt beat Portugal 2-1. Uruguay also beat the Netherlands, Germany, and Italy. The final for gold was Uruguay versus Argentina. Europe's dominance over the game was over. Partly because of differences between the International Olympic Committee and FIFA, FIFA decided to create its own independent tournament. It would be called the World Cup, and in deference to the two-time gold medalist Uruguay, it would be held in Montevideo, Uruguay. Uruguay again beat everyone they played and won the final 4-2 over Argentina. As you probably know, the World Cup will become the biggest sporting event in the world. Well, for half the world. FIFA held its first Women's World Cup in Sweden in 1995. Sort of. There was something called the FIFA World Championship for Women's Football for the M&M's Cup in China in 1991, which was later renamed the first Women's World Cup, partly because it was pretty popular. 
Who could have known it would be so big? Well, anyone who had been paying attention over the previous 20 years. FIFA and the English FA will not lift the ban on women playing until 1971. And even after they do, they don't do much to encourage the women's game. They refuse to recognize many women's international matches. Remember that women have been playing international matches since the 1800s. If you look up your favorite national team on Wikipedia, it'll say, for example, that they played their first international match in 1975 or 82, and so on. But often it's not true. It's just that that particular country's federation didn't recognize the women's game. So here's a riddle for you. Whether it's before the ban on women's football is lifted or after, FIFA has no interest in a Women's World Cup before the 1990s. FIFA barely acknowledges that women even play the game. So what's a woman got to do to get a World Cup? You could ask FIFA nicely, which many people did. You can wait until, the, until FIFA thinks of it themselves. You could protest, maybe sign a petition. Of course, that might take 20 years or more. Or maybe what really happened is someone said, screw FIFA, we're having a Women's World Cup anyway. The Federazione Italiana di Calcio Femminile was the Italian Women's Soccer Association in the 1960s. They decided that since women's football was getting pretty popular in Italy and other European countries, women needed something like FIFA to govern international matches. In 1969, they created the International and European Federation of Women's Football, or FIFE in Italian, in turn Italy. And their mission is to create an organization just as big as FIFA for the women's game. In the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, women are playing all over Europe and the world. They're just ignoring the ban on women playing. Some places have regional and national championships, others just amateur leagues. Some places have professional women's leagues, but it's all done independently of FIFA or any international organizations. In November of 1969, Fife organized the European Cup of Nations. Italy, France, Denmark, and England compete in turn. It was a success. So Fife decided to organize a proper Women's World Cup. Now, most of Fife's board are also on the board of directors or executives at Martini and Rossi, the Italian beverage company. Martini and Rossi like sp sponsoring sporting events, and this one gets to be all theirs. There were many difficulties in organizing the tournament. One of the biggest was that FIFA and most national associations didn't recognize the women's game. And FIFA wants to control all of football. FIFA tells the various football associations not to participate. The associations that do participate, however, find a loophole. Basically, the associations tell folks, hey, we're not going to send a team, but if a club team wants to go represent their country, we won't stop you. So those teams were often pro or semi-pro club teams that would don their country's colors for the tournament. In July of 1970, England, West Germany, Denmark, Czechoslovakia, Mexico, Austria, Italy, and Switzerland will play the first Women's World Cup. Czechoslovakia withdraws just beforehand because they have visa issues. 
England and Denmark top their group and play a semifinal that Denmark wins 2-0. Mexico tops the second group with an absolute thrashing of Austria 9-0 to play Italy in the semifinal. Italy wins that match 2-1. On the 15th of July, 1970, Denmark will take on Italy in the final for the trophy also known as the Martini and Rossi Cup. This match will determine the success or failure of this World Cup. It's played in Turin. The stadium is full. 40,000 people show up to see Denmark beat Italy 2-0. Fife and Martini and Rossi had rediscovered that women's football is not just popular, but can also be financially viable. But the next question, Italy in the 50s and 60s has a pro-women's league. They know that Italians like women's football. But what about the rest of the world? Are they ready for a Women's World Cup? To find out, they're going to do it again, but bigger and better. In 1971, Fife and Martini and Rossi will outdo themselves. In 1970, Mexico had hosted the FIFA Men's World Cup. So Fife decided to take advantage of that, and Mexico hosted the Fife Women's World Cup in 1971. Mexico, Argentina, England, Denmark, France, and Italy participated in the 1971 World Cup. Some of the players are as young as 13 years old. The English team, because of the English ban, has never played together as a team or even in a stadium. And there are other difficulties. The Mexican FA declares that any men's club that allows the women access to their pitches would be fined. Fife and Martini and Rossi basically say, bring it on. They secure two private stadiums that the Mexican FA has no jurisdiction over, Jalisco Stadium in Guadalajara and the Azteca in Mexico City. Jalisco Stadium is big. It has a capacity of 55,000. The Azteca is more than twice that size. It's the largest stadium in North America at the time. In 1971, it holds between 110 and 115,000 people. When the teams arrived in the airport, they were shocked. There were reporters, TV cameras, and fans eager to meet them. They signed autographs, there are police escorts everywhere they go. Some of the teams have come from playing in public parks to being overnight rock stars. Martini and Rossi are paying for everything, from flights and hotels to meals and beauty salons. The teams are interviewed on national television and are in the papers every day. La Tri, Mexico's team, are national heroes before they ever play a match. On August 15th, Mexico opens the tournament, beating Argentina 3-1. Group A plays in the massive Azteca, and it includes Mexico, Argentina, and England. Group B is Denmark, Italy, and France, and they play in the Jalisco Stadium. The group stage matches see between 50 and 80,000 fans per match. It's looking like this tournament will also be a financial success. According to FIFA, the most attended women's match ever was the final of the 1999 Women's World Cup 
in the Rose Bowl in California. Just over 90,000 people watched Brady Chastain make the winning penalty shot against China to win FIFA's third Women's World Cup. Right. Hold that thought. On August 28, 1971, Denmark beats Argentina 5-0 to advance to the final. The next day, Mexico beats Italy 2-1. The final would be Mexico's La Tree against reigning World Cup champions Denmark. Kind of a coincidence. In Italy, the year before, the host Italy and Denmark, arguably the strongest team, made the final match. In 71, host Mexico also make it to the final against the reigning champs, Denmark. Fife were widely accused of rigging the draw to ensure that the hosts would make the final against the strongest team. And in 1970, they had admitted more or less to doing exactly that. They did want to make money off the tournament after all. Do you remember the name Suzanne Augustuson? She said that when she walked out onto the pitch for Denmark on September 5th, she looked up at the stadium and all she saw was people. And the more she looked, the more people she saw. And then she had to look away because it was too much to understand. More than 110,000 people packed into the Azteca to watch this final match of the Women's World Cup. And it's a good thing she did look away. 15-year-old Suzanne Augustuson went on to score a hat-trick in the final of the 1971 Women's World Cup. The match ended 3-0. Denmark retained their title, and when it was all over, the teams went home. None of the teams were paid anything aside from expenses. Latrie had threatened to not play the final match unless the teams were paid, but eventually decided for the fans that they would play. The Danish team was briefly celebrated when they got home. The English team arrived home to the news that the players would receive a three-month ban from playing. Their coach, Harry Batt, was banned from football for life for organizing the English women's team. FIFA and the FA had a rebellion on their hands. One of the things they did was to tell all the associations that they should just ignore Fife, that it was just in it for the money, that Fife was trying to exploit female players. Which is funny, because FIFA today has more than a billion dollars in the bank and pays the Women's World Cup teams 7% of what the men's teams make. Anyway, Fife Duke disappeared in 1972. But the rebellion that started in Italy in 1970 is far from over in 1972. I remember reading, I think it was Hope Solo, when she was ki a kid, her teacher told the class to write about what they wanted to be when they grew up, a pretty standard essay. She said that she wanted to be a professional women's player. Her teacher told her straight up that wasn't a thing. Well, Mr. Teacher, you were wrong. Suzanne Augustuson went home to Denmark, and within a few months, the Italians were calling. They wanted to recruit her to play in Italian Serie A the top flight of women's football in Italy. But remember, she was only 15. She, she said that she wanted to finish high school. So from 1970 to 1974, she played for her hometown team of Holbeck. 
Shortly after she graduated in 1974, the Italians were calling again. In 1974, she signed with an Italian team and played professional football in Italy from 1974 until she retired in 1995. She won the league's equivalent of Golden Boot eight times. In her pro career in Italy, she racked up more than 600 goals, and that doesn't include her World Cup goals or the goals that she made for Holbeck. Denmark's first FIFA-sanctioned team was formed in 1972. Suzanne Augustuson was never called up. Thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, if you like the show, like I said, leave a review, share with your friends on social media. Those reviews really do help. Uh, if you'd like to see some pictures uh, of the teams or video when I can find it, please join the Slack channel. Uh, I've got a couple of links in the show notes to video of those two Women's World Cup finals. Uh, if you'd like to follow the show on social media, we're at, at ForgottenXI on Twitter. And like I said, please share. It helps a lot. Until next time. Oh, hey, one last thing. If you're a musician, or you know a musician, and you'd like me to promote your music on the show, please get in touch. See you next time.